Hello again, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Kid Kong at the Movies. I am your host, once again, Kid Kong. Today's a special episode to me because we're going to be talking about one of my all-time favorite movies and something that's directly responsible for my formative years, 1990's Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. The movie was directed by Steve Barron, who, while he has done films, like he directed Coneheads, Adventures of Pinocchio, and... You know, a TV miniseries, Merlin, which had Sam Neill, he was mostly known for doing music videos. Like, he directed music videos for Michael Jackson, Aha, Toto. Uh, I mean, he directed Bill, the music videos for Billie Jean, Take On Me, Africa, Summer of 69. He, he was he was really well known on that. Initial producer was Simon Fields, who was a production, uh, production manager of Moving Picture Company, he, which that company actually represented... Steve Barron, and mostly they did like commercials, like for Calvin Klein, Nike, uh, Budweiser beer, uh, and he also directed, helped with, or produced some music videos as well. Uh, the name Kim Dawson is another producer, and I'll get more to her in a little bit. Originally written by Bobby Hairbeck, and then later by Todd W. Langan. Um, I couldn't find a whole lot of information on them as a writer, but something very important about the two of them being the writers in this movie will, again, be discussed a little bit further on. Uh, of course, the film is an adaptation of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, both the comic series and the cartoon series. Uh, they took elements from both of them and mixed them together with a bit of a darker tone. Uh, it's largely based on the first issue of the comic, right down to... The turtles' father figure Splinter, who is kidnapped by the foot, they lose the foot in their first fight and have to retreat to a farm where they recover, and then eventually, of course, they fight again on the rooftops. This movie had kind of middling reviews, which I mean is to be expected. It's a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie. Most adults are not going to gravitate towards that naturally, but this movie was a massive, massive commercial success. The popularity of the cartoon series at the time, as well as the toys, were a, a high driving factor into parents bringing their children to see this movie. Uh, it was produced initially on a budget of $13.5 million and grossed well over $200 million worldwide. Now, this movie was an independent movie. That made it the highest grossing independent movie in history until The Blair Witch Project broke it nearly 10 years later. All right, y'all, saddle in because there's a bit of a, there's quite a bit to discuss here with a cast. Of course, April O'Neil is played by Judith Hogue, who she's mostly done television. Uh, she's been in movies, like you can see her in movies if you know you're looking for her. Uh, she was in the remake of Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, she was in I Am Number Four. She had a brief part in Armageddon. She was the mother on the Halloween Town movie series, or the made for TV movies from Disney. You might recognize her more from television. She was in Nashville as well as The Magician. Uh, Casey Jones was played by Elias Coteas. Elias Coteas has been in a few movies. Uh, nothing really of note as far as his movies go. Like, he was in Collateral Damage, Crash, and Zodiac. However, from the television series, he's very, very well known for being involved in the Chicago series of television shows that were produced by Dick Wolf, like Chicago Fire, Chicago Med, Chicago Justice, and Chicago PD where he plays character Al Olinsky. 
Elias Coteus also, when he was younger and had shorter hair, bore a passing resemblance to Chris Maloney, which that's just a little fun piece of trivia for you. Uh, April O'Neil's boss, Charles Pennington, was played by Jay Patterson, who, again, wasn't really in a whole lot of movies of note. And the reason I say of note is that he's been in over 60 movies, but he rarely has more than just bit parts. Uh, some of the movies he was in were DOA. Again, that's not the video game DOA. That's a, that's a movie DOA. <laughs> uh, Hard Rain, Death of a President, All the King's Men. Uh, I think he was even in A Million Ways to Die in the West. His son, Danny Pennington, was played by Michael Turney. Now, Michael Turney really didn't do a whole lot of on-screen acting. I think this is probably one of his only real on-screen roles he had. He wrote for Marvel Comics for quite some time, as well as did production work on movies after this. Uh, Chief Stearns was played by Raymond Sarah, who passed away in 2003. Raymond Sarah is a character actor. He's generally picked as the angry Italian character you see in television shows in the late 80s and 90s. Now, the Shredder was played by James Saito, who was in Pearl Harbor, Devil's Advocate, Life of Pi, The Thomas Crown Affair, I Think I Love My Wife. Uh, he was actually, the voice of him was not provided by James Saito. And I'm going to actually do a whole section on the voice actors for this movie as well. Lastly, his, his direct second-in-command, Tatsu, was played by Toshishiro Obata. Now, he, initially he moved to the, the United States to try and develop his own sword fighting martial art that he had made. He supplemented his income for that with parts and movies, and you can see him in Demolition Man and Showdown in Little Tokyo. A couple little fun actors that had small cameo roles in the movie include Skeet Ulrich and Scott Wolf, who played members of the foot, and their head thug that does most of the talking was played by Sam Rockwell. Now, Sam Rockwell, of course, has been in countless pictures over the last couple decades. He's really made a name for himself uh, in the movie Three Billboards. He was also, of course, Justin Hammer in the Marvel Cinematic Universe and Wild Bill from uh, the Green Mile movie. You know, there were, of course, there were some little extras here and there that you'd see on there, but they really don't come into play. Now, the characters, voice characters. Leonardo was voiced by Brian Tochi, who has appeared on screen in The Octagon, the Police Academy series. Uh, he's got a lot of uncredited voice extra roles in Disney and Pixar movies. You might recognize him from Revenge of the Nerds, where he played Takashi. Donatello was voiced by Corey Feldman. Of course, Corey Feldman, probably the most famous member of this cast. You know, he was in a couple of uh, Friday the 13th movies, Gremlins, The Goonies, Stand By Me. He was in the Lost Boys franchise as one of the Frog Brothers. And he played a, <laughs> a slightly fictionalized version of himself in Dickie Roberts' former child star. While I personally find that movie to be terrible, I love that they got a bunch of former child actors for that. Uh, Raphael's voice actor was Josh Pace. Now, mostly he just did TV roles, but he was in Joker. So take that as you will. Another one who was mostly in television roles was Michelangelo's voice, Robbie Wrist. Uh, you might find his name for Godzilla, the TV series. Now, that's the direct TV series sequel to the live action movie. And for more information on that movie, there's a podcast called Kaiju Carnage that delves into that whole genre. Recently, 
Cal, the kaiju guy, did an episode on the 1998 Godzilla film, which I can't recommend his podcast in that episode enough. It was great. You'll love it. Uh, he's also voiced a lot of characters in Naruto. He started out as Cousin Oliver on the Brady Bunch. Tatsu's voice actor, because they had him dubbed over, was Michael McConaughey, who has done a lot of anime. I mean, just some of the ones you're going to have known. He's been in Cowboy Bebop, Dragon Ball, Blue Dragon, Blue Exorcist, Ghost in the Shell, Bleach. I mean, he's he's got a very extensive voice acting career. Splinter was voiced by Kevin Clash, who also was the puppeteer for Splinter, because that one was actually mostly a puppet. Of course, Kevin Clash was the voice and puppeteer of Elmo for a very long time. He's also done work in Labyrinth. And if you are fans of the old Jim Henson series, Dinosaurs, he was the puppeteer and voice for Baby Dinosaur. You know, the one who would scream, not the mama, and smash his head with a, a frying pan. Shredder was voiced by David McCarran, who mostly was famous for video game work. He didn't really do a whole lot of other things than that. All right, hope you guys are still with me on this one because now that we're done with the voice acting, we got to get into the puppeteers and suit acting. <laughs> Leonardo's facial assistant was uh, Martin Peter Robinson. Now, he's the guy who would use operate the servos for facial expressions, moving them out to talk, etc. And in suit, you had David Foreman. Donatello's facial assistant was David Rudman, while his in-suit technician was Leif Tilden. Raphael had David Greenaway as his facial assistant, while his in-suit was... Josh Pice, who actually voiced the same character. And Michelangelo had Mac Wilson as his facial assistant, while his in-suit uh, actor was Michelin Sisti. Of course, I told you Splinter was done by Kevin Clash. Uh, Donatello and Raphael actually... Now, the guys who were Leonardo and Michelangelo had enough martial arts experience that for kicks and things like that, they were able to do the scenes just fine. Uh... Donatello and Raphael, not quite the case. They had in-suit martial arts stunt doubles, Ken Traum, and probably the more notable one is Ernie Reyes Jr., who was Donatello's, who, of course, would go on to play Kino in the sequel, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, Secret of the Ooze. The martial arts film, uh, I'm sorry, the martial arts suit doubles would also double for, like, Michelangelo's scene with his nunchucks and things like that. Uh, in addition to that, all four of the suit actors had on-screen cameo uh, appearances like Leo's was a gang member. Michelangelo's was the pizza delivery man. Donatello was the messenger from the foot that, you know, slapped April O'Neil on that. And Raphael of course was the taxi passenger, which because of his line that he has, I always knew I was like, when I was a kid, I was like, he sounded exactly like Raphael come to find out later that of course he is Raphael. So this movie had a lot in its production. Um, Of course, the comic came out in 1984. Uh, directed, uh, it was created by Eastman and Laird. They they had no interest in making a series. They just wanted to make a, a comic and get their names in print. And the first pressing sold out like really, really quickly. People wanted to see more, so they they made more. And the Ninja Turtles exploded as far as popularity in the comics. And of course, what do you do when you have a comic series like that? You want to make toys. How do you advertise for toys? You make a television series. So they made an initial five-episode little... Uh, I'm not going to say that it was like a TV movie, but that's essentially what it comes down to for them to advertise the toys and to advertise the comic. Now, of course, to do that, they wanted to make some differences, which is something that came into play later on in the franchise history. 
uh, like giving the turtles different color bandanas, giving them a love of pizza, um, modifying their personalities. Because in the initial comic, they all had red bandanas. And while there were some differences in personality, it wasn't as, you know, pronounced. The success of the toys and the comics and everything else, it led itself to, uh, okay, well, maybe we can make a, a move out of this and that movie out of this. And that's what that's when Gary Proper came in. Now, he brought in Kim Dawson. Now, I mentioned that name a little bit earlier. They initially envisioned this movie and brought it to Thomas Gray, a producer, with the idea of filming it in China, in Hong Kong, to kind of take a little bit less of a budget by doing it overseas like that. Of course, he wasn't very thrilled with the idea because he was naturally leery of, you know, just the name Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. But after some persuasion, he relented and... Because of his connections with them, he met with Raymond Chow, head of Golden Harvest, to discuss this, making this movie over there. Uh, they, he agreed with a budget of $3 million, and because of his former collaborations with Steve Barron, he was recommended to Chow, and Raymond Chow, was, he, he was sold. He was on board for that. Barron was not exactly familiar with the source material, but he was intrigued by it. And after looking at it, decided, you know what, this is something I can go ahead and do. The initial script was written by Herbeck, who the script was not very well received by him. Like he, he didn't really care for it. So he hired Langan, who was at that point in time, very well known for writing on the wonder years to do a day one revision, which basically means that he took that first script that first script that was on and rewrote the entire thing. Uh, that's a tremendous amount of work to do. So, you know, they wanted to try and change some of the tone out and make it more commercially friendly to what the people who were putting up the money wanted to do. Uh, he, in rewriting it, that's when he combined elements of the cartoon with the comic. He gave the turtles their multicolored headbands and the personalities and the, their love of pizza, while also taking the ideas of like the rooftop battle, you know, their loss to the foot, their their father figure being stolen, etc. April's job as well, because in the initial comics, April was actually a lab assistant. She was not a reporter, but they decided to make her a reporter in the comic, in the TV series, rather. And that's where they went from there. It took two months to refine and rewrite the script. And initially, the idea was that it would be live action characters interacting with comic book or cartoon characters, rather. I'm sorry I keep doing that. They're, they're very similar words. And I uh, sometimes I speak a little fast and my words trip up. Yeah, they wanted to do it uh, similar to how Who Framed Roger Rabbit had live-action people interacting with cartoon characters. Because of the amount of action that was necessary, fight scenes and things like that, this was deemed to be very technically difficult, so the idea was made, why don't we go ahead and work with suits, animatronics, and puppetry? When you're doing things with puppets and suits and things like that in Hollywood in the 80s, the first name you go to and the only name you go to is Jim Henson, which... When that happened, Thomas Gray knew that that $3 million budget wasn't going to cut it anymore. Uh, with Jim, the, Jim Henson was just more expensive than that. In, in order to do that, he needed more money. So he went to the States to try and find more money from different uh, releasing, not releasing companies, I'm sorry, distribution companies for, you know, releasing the movie elsewhere. Every single one of them shockingly turned him down between Disney, Columbia, MGM, Viacom, Warner Brothers. None of them wanted anything to do with it. Between the title sounding silly and, 
the idea of making another movie based on a cartoon series and toy line when this was shortly after Masters of the Universe was a colossal flop at the box office. They, they just, it was deemed to be too risky. So he had no choice. He went back to Raymond Chow to try and figure out, you know, what can we do on this? Chow had some contacts in Europe from release of their martial arts films over in Europe because those were actually released a lot more overseas before they ever got to us. And he used his connections to get a couple of different studios for pre-sale and distribution and it raised four million more money and dollars for it. However, they were still a little bit shy. So at this point, they, Gray was, he was struggling to figure out what, they, what more they could do from that. He was contacted by New Line Cinema, who at the time was really well known for the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise. They wanted distribution rights for the states, and they put up the last bit of money so that they would be able to afford Jim Henson. Also, because of the idea of the, the Turtles loving pizza, Domino's agreed to sponsor, which is it's kind of ironic that Domino's sponsored and Domino's provided like the pizza product placement in the movie because when the, t the movies came out on VHS, they came with coupons for Pizza Hut. <laughs> well, Steve Barron was uh, familiar with Henson, having worked with him before. And, you know, he met up with him to discuss doing this. Now, when I say he worked with him before, Steve Barron directed shorts for Jim Henson's Storyteller series that was in the 80s. It's a... They're, they're fantastic. You can find quite a few of them on YouTube. Um, Jim Henson was a little reluctant to do it. You know, I mean, he had done Dark Crystal. He had done Labyrinth. And while, yes, there were darker elements to those, the idea of what the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles did with their weapons and everything else, it was he was worried about the violence and being associated with that when he's already associated with Sesame Street and things like that. He, he was very, very unsure of that. Uh Baron assured him of what they were wanting to do. He he told him about the tone of the movie they were wanting to go with and everything. And he, you know, he he was able to get him to agree to it. Now, even though Jim Henson agreed to that and his studio provided all of the animatronics and everything, he himself kind of took a step back from it. And his son, Brian, oversaw the vast majority of it. The suits took 18 weeks to develop. Um, they would make molds out of fiberglass so that they get the idea of it. And then they would use latex and foam rubber to craft the actual suits. Splinter was a puppet. They made sure the suits would be fitted to the actors for it. The heads and faces were fitted with the most advanced servos they could get for it. And you can, it, it holds up even really well to this day. I mean, the turtles' faces, their expressions, when they match what they're saying, like it's 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 really really freaking good. I, I I loved it. The equipment for these servos was kept in the shells so that the performers could still move around easily. But because of that, when the ones that had the equipment in the servos and everything, they weighed over sixty pounds. And Ernie Reyes Jr. If you've seen TMNT two, you know he's not a very big man. That's that's how all the rest of the actors were that were in these suits so they'd be moving a lot slower with all that on so because of that what they did was they built separate suits that did not have the servos in them for them to wear when they would be doing flips kicks run running things like that the only problem that came with that was that the facial expressions would stay stationary and like a kind of like locked in a bit of a goofy expression 
I, I never noticed it as a child, and even as an adult, I don't notice it. Unless somebody points it out while you're watching it, you're not going to. Uh, these suits were, you know, they they were hell to work in because they were hot. They got hot really, really quickly. You know, the servos made constant noise in their ears and in their heads and everything. And more than one of the performers had moments of claustrophobia in them. And specifically the one that was Donatello had the most issues with it and would have to frequently take breaks, which the problem with that was that the head was not very easy to remove. They had a limited range of sight with these things. I mean, they had slits in the faces right underneath the headbands for them to see out of. But I mean, there's, there's still only so much that you can see, you know, unfortunately Jim Henson died two months after the movie was released. He did live to see it and did enjoy the premiere and enjoyed seeing his work on stage or on screen rather. So he, he was, it, it got, a, it, he approved of it, which is great. Uh, because of his his passing, the sequel, which came out less than a year after the first movie, more on that in a little bit, uh, was dedicated to his memory. So, uh, you know, the, the suits, in addition to the individual actors in the suits, you know, they, they had to match the servos with the, the, puppetri- the puppeteers and the uh, facial assistants had to make sure it matched the words, the the way the the act, the voice actors they had to try and match all that. It was it was very difficult to do. Probably the easiest one out of the bunch for them was Splinter, and that's solely because Kevin Clash had a tremendous amount of experience already with puppetry, and even then he had a facial assistant to help with the face, the eyes that would move on his and whatnot. So it was, I mean, it was it. Nothing's easy in Hollywood, and. This proved to be no different. I do think it would have been... It wouldn't have looked as good if they had done it with the cartoon characters like what they did in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Because while I love Who Framed Roger Rabbit, there are times when the cartoon characters are physically touching the people and it you can tell they're not really touching them with these, you know, something that's much more tangible that you can see, feel and whatnot. It's, it just, it looks all that. It looks much better. It wasn't difficult for them to cast this movie. Um, they only asked a couple of different actresses for April O'Neil and Judith Hogue absolutely jumped at the chance to work with Jim Henson. She, she loved the idea that she got to do that. And she also loved the script. She found the script was to be very, very sweet. So she was more than happy to jump on that. Casey Jones, actor Elias Coteus, you know, was a fan of the comics and was also a fan of the cartoon series, so he had no issues getting on with it either. The guy that plays Danny, um, okay, so he came in for an audition to talk to, and Steve Barron was like, okay, this is a kid. Trying to get him to read lines is not going to be the easiest thing in the world because he's not going to see the point to it. So instead, he just talked with Michael Turney about like his interests in music and movies and things like that. And after speaking with him for a little while, the, the way he would get animated with it, he's like, you know what? This guy's good for this. Let's, we'll go ahead and use him. Um, they, they went to New York to film a couple of scenes. Not much of it was filmed there. They, they use it to get footage of like the, the skyline, uh, the interior of a subway, warehouse, couple things like that. 
most of the filming was done on Dino De Laurentiis' farm in Wilmington, which a lot of movies have been filmed there. You know, they, they built a lot of sets like alleyways. They built the rooftop sets, the homes. They built the, the lair there. They, they did a really, really good job building these sets and capturing the feel of the comics, the grunge, the grit. Like you, you can, you get a feeling like when you see these sets, you get the feeling that people aren't going out because of this crime wave that's going on because of the Foot Clan. So I, I absolutely love that. Now, one of the problems with the suits kicked in when it came to the manholes that they would come in and out of, whether it was for, to get to their lair or when they were taking April home, the suits being large, they had to build eight foot square rooms underneath of the manholes just for them to, to get in and out of because they, if they were going to be trying to climb up and down a ladder, like what a traditional manhole is, they just wouldn't have been able to do it. So essentially they just make boxes that they would jump in and out of. Altogether filming took about eh, three months. Steve Barron wanted Malcolm McLaren, who had done some music videos and done a few other things to score the movie. And that's when issues started coming in. Um, between his style of music and Steve Barron's style of filming, producers and other members of like the studios, they felt that the movie didn't really look like a movie. They're like, we, it, it works great in three to five minute chunks, like a music video, but when taken as a whole, they, they had issues with it. Um, Steve Barron wanted more time to film as well. Golden Harvest didn't want to spend any more money. You know, just everything that was going on with that caused Steve Barron to actually leave the movie late in post-production. When he left, McLaren went with him because, again, the studio didn't like McLaren. So they got John Duprez along with those other producers I mentioned a little bit earlier to do a new score and to do a new part of the movie. Um, you know, he, he was given two months to work on it. Uh, he want, They wanted him to move it more away from, away from the darker tone and away from the almost episodic-like content during chunks of the movie to try and make a more seamless film. Now, John Duprez had a lot more experience with movie soundtracks, which helped tremendously as far as this went. Uh, he was not <laughs> he was not at all familiar with who or what the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles were. His 12-year-old son was the one who, you know, told him about it. He took a lot of musical inspiration for this from certain scenes in the movie from Tom and Jerry, you know, having the music match the moment, which is why you get a couple of silly moments like when the Foot Clan has broken into April's house and are fighting the Turtles. One of them dunks Donatello's head into the water, and you hear like this cartoonish music along with a slight sound effect when he spits the water in his face, things like that. Um, the main theme that he wrote for it is one of my absolute favorite things to listen to. And I'm so glad that it's finally on Spotify for the longest time. You couldn't find the score available anywhere. There was a soundtrack release that had a lot of like hip hop songs and things like that, but not really I mean, there's no, really no other way for you to listen to the score. People were having to find other ways to get it. So they finally, finally released it in 2018. The main theme that I love so much, that opening to it, it both sounds like and has no resemblance to the intro to the old cartoon series. 
that gives you like an immediate feeling of familiarity with it, which is wonderful to do that. Um, of course, the big song that came from the movie was by Partners in Crime, T-U-R-T-L-E, Power, Turtle Power. My only issue with that song is that it refers to Raphael as the leader. And while I have my own personal theory as to that, this is not a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles franchise podcast. I I could I could talk about the Turtles for days on end and never even run out of things to say because it's been a part of my life my entire life. Um one of the things that John Duprez did with the with the movie, with the score that he wrote for it. The scene where the turtles are meditating and they speak with an astral projection of Splinter. That musical cue that you hear, that that musical score, does a great job of heightening the emotion of that scene. He actually took his own personal feelings because he missed his kids. He was working around the clock to get this done in such a short amount of time that you know he wasn't getting to see him. So he took how he felt about that and used that when he wrote that particular part. Movie was finally released in March of 1990. Um, again, critics weren't the kindest to this. You know, they they felt that it was silly or that it just, you know, mind numbing. They didn't they didn't care for it all that much. My thing about that is that they're not really the target audience. That's the problem I have with critics in a lot of ways, is that. A lot of critics are not the target audience for those movies. So I get that you want to try and get, oh, I want an honest, neutral review of this kind of thing. The problem with that is if you take a guy who does not like horror movies and you have him review a horror movie, he's not going to give it that great a review. Like, he'll try, but his own personal dislike is going to color his opinion. That's the same way with this. This movie, similar to, you know, Super Mario Brothers. John Leguizamo said about that, that the, the movie needed to be aimed at the people who were playing the game, the video, the, the kids. It's no different with this, you know. It, children were the target audience on that. As long as children enjoyed what they were watching, that was the important thing. Again, massive, massive commercial success. You know, they sold hundreds of thousands of copies of the soundtrack that they did release. You know, VHS tapes, like DVD re-releases. The franchise, that movie provided such a new avenue for uh, financial gain for the franchise that it just, it's its ever since then, it, it, they come back to it. They make more movies or more sequels or whatnot. And I'm going to talk about them briefly. Um, the movie, when it was released in theaters, uh, one of the things about the franchise as a whole is that because of specifically Michelangelo's nunchucks and children trying to build their own and, you know, ended up hurting themselves, coupled with the fear that the word ninja would have racist connotations to it, in the UK, it's not known as Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. It's known as Teenage Mutant Hero Turtles. That's what it was almost the entire run. Now, it has been released as Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles in the UK since that time. But because of that, they had to edit it and censor a lot of it. Like, almost no usage of Michelangelo's nunchucks is shown in the initial release that the United Kingdom got. Which, when you think that there are two very key scenes that involve the nunchucks between his little 
chuck off he has with the other member of the foot. And then when Splinter confronts the Shredder, a lot of editing had to go into changing that. Um, Germany kept that exact same edit to it, but they also went in and added silly sound effects to like when people get thrown through a window or people, somebody would get kicked or something would break. Not all that dissimilar to the Adam West Batman series to try and lighten up some of the violence, which personally would have driven me absolutely insane to try and watch that. But here nor there. Um, when it was released on DVD, probably the best DVD release that you can find for it would actually probably be the German release. Um, because the German release comes with, in addition to the movie, I mean, the, that, that part's edited, sure, but it also comes with a 45-minute documentary on the making of the movie, which I haven't tried to find that on YouTube. I'm probably going to try and find it on YouTube after I get done with this. Because if it's there, I'd love to watch it. Um, also, it contained a couple of deleted scenes. Now, these were scenes that were not completely finished with editing. So, they're not that... They don't hold up as well. But a couple of them are really important. Uh, and actually come straight out of the novelization. They made a novelization for children that I owned. It was like a little kid's chapter book. I read it at least a dozen times <laughs> in the first two weeks of owning it. And the uh, that book actually contains, like I said, a couple of scenes that were filmed, but eventually cut in the editing process, including a scene where the Shredder is punishing the thugs who failed with April O'Neil, which is actually where we first get introduced to the Shredder. And that part is when you see him in the, in the normal cut of the movie, when he steps forward and Tatsu takes his cape off of his shoulders, what he's actually doing is he's removing the cape from that for freeing up his motion. They then lower a mat onto the ground. Shredder gets down onto his knees and assumes like a resting position. They throw the, the uh, failures in there with him and tell them, if you can score upon him, you'll be forgiven. And Shredder beats the crap out of nine or ten ninjas by himself. You know, he's absolutely played up as the threat that he was meant to be in the comic series. I mean, the fact that he handles the turtles by himself with very little difficulty shows that in the climax of the film. Um, they also filmed a scene where Michelangelo, out of his own frustration and rage from them losing, when they're at the farm, he's punching a heavy bag. He breaks through the heavy bag and just keeps going. He keeps, and eventually collapses an entire wall out of this barn before he himself falls and just kind of, you know, finally lets that emotion overtake him. And you can see a little bit of this in the movie itself. The scene where you see Raphael on the top of the barn shouting Splinter's name. If you look, you can actually see that it's Michelangelo because you can see the nunchucks. They changed Raphael in that one scene because they're like, okay, Michelangelo hasn't showed anything like this. We can't use that. Uh, there's a scene, like a training montage, where Michelangelo turns his uh, headband sideways so that you cannot see his eyes. You can see a little bit of this, but the whole idea is that Michelangelo has figured out to let his own senses kick in rather than just using his eyes. And he holds his own completely against his three brothers. I love that idea. I've always personally been of the belief that Michelangelo is the most skilled of the turtles. He has the most untapped potential. I digress. The last uh, scene that was in there was an alternate ending where 
April has made those drawings of the turtles when they're at the barn. And she and her boss's son take them to a mogul that's the head of a comic book company. And she presents it to him like as a, we can make a comic out of this. And the guy's like, you know, it just, it seems kind of far-fetched at which point April and Danny begin laughing and he just stares at them in wonder. And you can see behind him through the large plate glass window that you see in all kinds of New York skyscrapers, uh, skylines, the turtles are clinging to the outside with like hooks and just laughing hysterically at him saying that they seem far-fetched. Again, this movie has left a giant legacy in its wake. Um, they made two direct sequels to it. The first one, TMNT Secrets of the Ooze, also suffered from heavy editing in the writing process. And as well, because similar to how between Batman Returns and Batman Forever, people complained about the violence in this. The violence was toned down in the sequel to the point where the Turtles almost do not use their weapons at all. You know, we get the two mutates, Toka and Razor. They were supposed to be Bebop and Rocksteady. Due to the television show, they didn't have, they couldn't get the rights to use them at the time, so they had to use somebody else. Um, Corey Feldman was having drug issues and did not return to voice Donatello in that, even though everybody else returned at that time, except for April O'Neil. April O'Neil's actress did not return for the second or third movie. She was replaced by Paige Turco, who. Personally, I didn't really care for as April O'Neil. She's a she's a great a good actress. I just I didn't see her as April O'Neil. Uh, that also that movie is what gave us the Super Shredder. We were supposed to be introduced to Krang of the Utrom with that movie as well. It got nixed and they didn't do that. Then of course we got the third movie, Turtles in Time or Back in Time rather, which is widely considered to be the worst out of the entire series, where they go back in time to feudal Japan. Um. We also got a live-action television series, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, The Next Mutation, which was loosely connected to these movies. Like, it shared a couple of similar continuity points, but it branched at some point. That TV series introduced the female turtle, Venus de Milo. You know, they have since introduced the female turtle in the comics in a much, much better way. I much prefer the female turtle they have now over Venus, because Venus did more, like, Ninja witchcraft, and I just I never really cared for that. One plus that that TV series gave us was a crossover with Power Rangers in space. <laughs> that can be found, I think that can be found on Netflix. 2007, we got the animated TMNT, the computer animated movie, which again has mostly has connections to that initial trilogy of movies. That that's largely hinted at at the very end of the movie where you see like the scepter, you see Shredder's helmet, the vial that had the ooze in it, etc. Like, you know, we got the two Michael Bay movies that came out in 2014 and 2016. Uh, the first movie that he made, I, my, I, okay, look, I love Out of the Shadows. Because they basically just used it as a love letter to the animated cartoon. That's it. We got Bebop and Rocksteady in that. You know, a lot of a lot of references to that. And I, I greatly enjoy that. We got Krang and everything with that. But those movies themselves, they just don't hold up. The Turtles are CGI and they're way too big. Like, I'm sorry. The Turtles are not supposed to be upwards of eight to nine feet tall. They're just not. 
Um, we also got a couple of different animated series out of that came along with it. Like we got the, or of course the 1987 original animated series. And then we got the 2003 Fox kids animated series, which was my personal favorite, which again, that has a lot in common with this first movie because it takes a lot of the similar things like the fight with the shredder, you know, splinter being kidnapped and them trying to find him. The only difference is April O'Neil goes back to being a lab assistant in that, like she was in the original comics. And of course, then they made the 2012 Nickelodeon animated series and the most recent animated series, Rise of the TNT, which I'm having a lot of difficulty with that one simply because it's such a vast departure, even from all the other series that they've done. You know, I, I'm pretty sure I mentioned in my introduction episode this movie having a special place in my heart in that, you know, we moved. I was a kid. I couldn't help move. Put that VHS in for me, and I was hooked on it ever since. The second movie, for all of its problems that it has, honestly, it's probably my most watched out of the entire franchise, simply because we moved a lot as a kid, and it kind of became a tradition to watch Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, Secret of the Ooze, when we would move into new new places. You know, I even carried that on as an adult when I would move into a new apartment or and I would move into a house with a couple friends, what have you. I would watch it the first new night staying there. The turtles move in that to their new lair. And I always felt a connection to that. Um, the turtles had a massive impact on my life. You know, I have had a lifelong love of pizza because of that. I can literally eat pizza every night and never get sick of it. I have Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles shirts. Um, my wedding cake that we had at my, at my wedding the groom's piece was actually a Michelangelo pop vinyl. So that again should tell you how important that franchise has been to me. And it, it really all came from this movie. I love the movie. You know, I cannot wait to show it to my daughter. I got to achieve a lifelong dream of mine. One of the few good things that has come out of this coronavirus epidemic is the theaters are having to get creative to try and survive. The local movie theater here showed this movie, the 1990 Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie, on the big screen. I got to go and watch it. I had a smile on my face from the moment the movie started till the moment the movie ended. Uh, that's To me, that was literally a dream come true. I, ha I can't say enough positive about the movie. You know, it's, it's fantastic. If you've never seen it, I, <laughs> I don't know where you've been. Um, watch it, show it to your kids. If you have children, it's just, just, again, it's, I, I can't speak enough positive things about this movie. Um, it's also one of the few times apart from the, again, the O three animated TV series they did where they actually did the shredder, right? They didn't make him a bumbling fool who couldn't really keep up. Shredder was meant to be a badass, and that's what he is. You know, he, the fact that the turtles could not overcome him by themselves. And real quick before I go, I do want to mention there is one thing in this first movie at that climactic scene that has always stuck out to me when Shredder implies that Splinter is dead. It's Leonardo who snaps and lunges at him instead of Raphael, which if you think about his whole character arc he's taken throughout the movie, it makes sense that he would be the one to finally have enough. 
Also, when you see that Splinter is alive, Michelangelo almost instinctively tries to go to him like a child goes to their father and has to be restrained. Little touches like that that the actors did, like, phenomenal. I, I can't, again, I can't say enough good about it. All right, I've talked your ear off enough about the first Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie. Next week, we're going to be delving into Queen of the Damned. Now, that one I'm really looking forward to because... Anne Rice has a very interesting relationship with that movie, and we will be discussing that as well. So, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. I certainly enjoyed uh, looking into it. A lot of this research that I did for this is stuff that I've done for fun myself over the years, and I just I went through a couple things just for like a refresher on this, like IMDb for like actors credits and things like that. So, again, next week, Queen of the Damned. Until then, this is Kid Kong, and I will see you at the movies.